Good morning. I know I speak for uh, Jerry as well as myself when I say um, that it's been a great blessing and a privilege just to be here. Um, we're so grateful for all of you guys who are here and for those of you who came to the evangelism teaching this week. I know that both of us, our faith was encouraged to be able to see what God was doing in raising up the people of this church to seek after lost people to tell them the good news of Christ. Uh, it's been a great encouragement just to be able to see what God can do through stirring up his people and through using his word. Um, so we thank you. And on behalf of our home church, Rock Creek Baptist Church, we thank you and we extend greetings and fellowship um, to all of you. If you would, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Colossians chapter 4. Colossians chapter 4. And our sermon this morning is going to be uh, from verses 2 through 6 of Colossians 4. While you're turning there, I'd like you to think with me about a sporting event. It could be football, it could be basketball, it could be some kind of track and field thing. But if you've ever been to a sporting event, you'll notice that there's two general crowds of people. There are the players, the people that everybody's focus is on, and there's the people in the audience, the people in the bleachers, the stands, or what have you. And they're watching the game. And there's a distinction between the players who are actually conducting the game or who are competing in the competition and the people who are just there as spectators, people who are just there to watch and be entertained. Uh, you see that as well in a play. If you've ever been to a play before, there's the actors on the stage who are actually performing the play, who are telling the story. And there's people in the seats who are watching the story, who are there to be entertained. Or if you've been in a parade, there's the people on the floats, there's the people who are going through the streets, they're in the costumes, and then there's the parade goers, people who are standing on the sidelines, not participating, but just watching. We're familiar in a lot of ways to this distinction between performer and spectator. One group of people just does the thing and the other um, watches. But when we're talking about the church of Christ, when we're talking about the church specifically as it goes about the work of evangelism, there isn't a spectator versus a competitor aspect. That is, everybody who is a Christian, everybody who names the name of Christ and trusts in him, takes part in this work of evangelism. You don't have to be a preacher. You don't have to be a professional evangelist. You don't have to have a certain degree. You don't have to be a Sunday school teacher in order to take part in the work of evangelism. You can be old or young, poor or rich. You can come from any kind of a background. And if you're in Christ, God has given you a way that you can participate in the work of sharing the gospel. And as we look at the book of Colossians today, I think we should take heart about that. That all of us, as we are, with our various gifts, with our various weaknesses, that all of us as Christians can participate in this proclamation of the good news that the church is supposed to be part of. Uh, and today we're going to dive into what exactly does that look like? How do we as Christians in our various walks of life take part in this work? So if you'll read along with me in Colossians chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. Continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. At the same time, pray also for us, that God may open to us a door for the word, to declare the mystery of Christ, 
on account of which I am in prison, that I may make it clear which is how I ought to speak. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. This is God's word. And I think, uh, would you pray with me once more before we hear? Lord God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its power. And we thank you that it's through hearing the word of Christ that we come to faith. And it's through that word that we're further nourished and encouraged in our faith. I pray that you would use that word. I echo the prayers of Pastor Josh that you would use this in all of our hearts to strengthen our faith. Let us trust you and please use it to make us more fruitful disciples. I pray that you would keep distractions out of our minds and hearts and let us listen attentively to the voice of God through the scriptures. In Christ's name, amen. So as we look at this text, um, if you're looking in the whole context of the book of Colossians, you know that in this book, Paul's main point is that Christ is sufficient. That is, once the believer trusts in Jesus, once his faith is rooted in Jesus, he doesn't have to go somewhere else in order to get further spiritual illumination or wisdom or power. But Paul's main point is that in Christ, you are complete. And so growing in the Christian life is learning to walk as you've received Christ Jesus the Lord. And towards the end of the book, Paul lays out specific instructions how people, Christians in their various walks of life, can embody this Christ sufficiency, how they can embody the fact that Christ is their Lord, gives them all that they need, and equips them for their various tasks in life. If you look at chapter 3, 18, verses 4, 1, just before this, Paul's laid out how Christians are supposed to act in three different sets of relationships. He talks about how husbands and wives are to relate to each other, how parents and children are to relate to each other, and how slaves and masters are to relate to each other in the ancient world. And the instructions that he gives are different for each group of people. But what we notice in this text is that there isn't any such qualifier. He doesn't limit the instructions that he's about to give to the pastor. He doesn't limit it to professional evangelists, and he doesn't limit it even to the lay people, to the people who will assemble and listen to the preach word every day. This applies to everybody. So I think we can take heart that you don't have to fit into a specific category in order to carry out these instructions. So whereas wives are supposed to submit to their husbands and husbands are supposed to graciously love and be the authority in the homes, and those two are kind of distinct, both the husband and the wife can carry out the instructions that Paul lays out here. So as we're listening today, you can take encouragement that you as a Christian, where you are in your walk of life, can carry out these simple instructions. And by doing so, you will help advance the kingdom of God. So what exactly is Paul telling us here? I think what he's saying is that believers, all believers, should spread the gospel by praying for other Christians and by living wisely among their unbelieving neighbors. Say that again. Christians should spread the gospel and can spread the gospel by praying for other Christians and by living wisely among the unbelievers that they encounter. We can see that there are these two facets, the prayer aspect and the wise living aspect. So in verses two through four, we see Paul unpack what, how the role of prayer um, works 
in the work of evangelism. We see that his first instruction is for the church to continue steadfastly in prayer, being watchful in it with thanksgiving. Now, this may be so much of a basic thing that we're tempted to just kind of glide over it. If you've been in church for any period of time, you know that one thing that religious people do, and Christians in particular do, is pray. We bring our concerns and our desires before God. We thank Him for the blessings that He gives us, and we seek especially His care for those we know who are sick or hurting or for help when we're in trouble. It's kind of a basic staple of the Christian life. And Paul assumes that here, but he still thinks it's worth noting to encourage people to continue in prayer. Notice his instruction isn't just for people to pray, but to continue steadfastly in prayer. That is, they're supposed to keep at it. They're supposed to continue in this work. They're supposed to, you know, press on in prayer. And that's important because if you've been a person of prayer for a great period of time, you know how difficult it can be. Various cares and struggles in life can distract you from the need to pray, or when you're praying, you may not know what to say. It may be difficult to think of the right words, or it may be difficult for you to focus. And so if we're not careful, I know this has been true in my own life, we can let our prayer life kind of atrophy. If we don't see this as being an important part of the Christian life, an important part of the Christian life that actually does something, we may be tempted to neglect it for more important things like paying the bills or getting the kids ready for school or preparing for a Sunday school lesson. But Paul says this is important enough that we must continue steadfastly in it and that we have to be watchful. This admonition to be watchful is common in the New Testament. Uh, one of the most memorable times that Christians were exhorted to be watchful was in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus told his disciples, my soul is very troubled. Stay here and keep watch with me. What does it mean to keep watch? We know that in regular context, to keep watch is to be on guard for something. It's a military term. When you go to a military base, there are guards all around the perimeter. They have their weapons, and they're looking around trying to make sure that they know what's going on. They're on the lookout to try to see if any threats arise. And if the threats arise, they can be ready because they've been watching. They've been on the alert. And when Jesus was talking to his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, he said they were supposed to keep watch with him by praying. You remember in Matthew 26 that when Jesus was praying earnestly about the cup of God's wrath that he was going to take for his people, he came back and he found his disciples sleeping. And you remember what he said to them? He said, could you not keep watch with me for one hour? Watch and pray so that you do not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus said, it behooves you to be on your guard. You need to be on your guard and you need to be praying and asking God for strength so that you can be ready when the trial comes. And when the trial did come, when the guards and the chief priests came to seize Jesus, they all scattered. But Jesus told them, you need to be watchful. You need to be praying for God to keep you out of temptation. You need to be on the alert. So as we're praying in the Christian life, there should be a sense of urgency. I'm not just doing some, you know, little spiritual exercise. This is very important. Because as you pray, what Paul seems to be getting at is we need to pray so that we can be on the alert spiritually. 
We need to be aware of what's going on in our own hearts, what our own sin proclivities are, how we're growing or how we're not growing, what is going on in our lives, what sources of temptation or sources of growth there are. And if we're not on guard, it's possible that we could have something sneak up on us and hit us when we're not expecting it. So Paul encourages people to continue in prayer and to be watchful. You can't live the Christian life at random, Paul is saying. You need to always be ready. And so while there's the watchfulness, while there's the urgency element, he also says that you need to be watchful in it with thanksgiving. And so as we pray and as we're asking God for things, it may be easy for us to forget the many ways that he's already blessed us. So a healthy prayer life doesn't just ask God for things that we need. It also thanks him for all that he's given us. In fact, we read in Colossians 3, a little ways up in verse 17, he says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now that's interesting. We're supposed to do what we do for the glory of Christ as we're giving thanks to him. What that seems to mean is that the source, the root, the power behind anything we do in the Christian life has been given to us by Jesus. You don't thank somebody for something that they had nothing to do with, right? When we sarcastically say to somebody, thanks a lot, what are we pointing out? We're pointing out that they didn't actually do anything to help us when we were in need. So if you're thanking somebody, you're thanking somebody because they've given you something. As we see in the book of Colossians, what we learn is that Christ has given us everything that we need. In Colossians verse 2, he atoned for our sins by canceling out the written debt, the legal debt that stood against us on the cross, and that he blotted all of our sins out, and that in him we have the fullness of what we need. We have all the spiritual resources that we need to grow as we set our minds on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. He gives us the power to put to death sinful things in our own lives, and he links us together with other Christians in a living fellowship. So we have so many gifts. We have so much that God has given to us, and all acts of obedience come from us taking things from these treasure chests that Jesus has given us. It's like we're stewards, you remember the parables of the stewards in the Gospels? We are called on to invest money. We're called to do legal transactions, but we do it all with money that's been given to us. We don't have to scrounge it up on our own resources. God gives it to us freely. And so as Paul tells us to pray, we're supposed to pray with thanksgiving because God hasn't left us without what we need. He's given us everything that we need so we can enter into the attitude where Jesus tells us, when you pray, believe that you have received it and you will have it because we recognize that God is generous, that he's good and that he does everything for his own glory and he equips us to carry out the tasks that he gives us. That should be an encouragement to us, particularly as we consider the prospect of evangelism because I don't know about you guys, there are times when I've been on the brink of sharing the gospel with somebody or mentally preparing myself to share the gospel and I felt very ill-equipped. Now, I didn't know if I had the right words to say. I didn't know if it was the right time. I didn't know if I could do it. But according to this, Paul tells us that we should always be praying and always be giving thanks. So the resources you need to be able to share the gospel with that difficult family member or that person at work or to a stranger that you've met, it's there. It's at your fingertips. You just have to reach out, ask God for it, and be thankful for the gift that he's given. 
So we see that Paul's generally talking about prayer, but is this really relevant to evangelism? It is, because he says in verse 3, at the same time, so as you're praying, as you're continuing in prayer with thanksgiving, pray also for us that God may open to us a door for the word to declare the mystery of Christ. So if you know Paul, he was a missionary. He was apostle. His mission was to make Christ known in places where nobody had ever heard of him. And on his journeys, Paul had gotten himself in Rome under house arrest, essentially in jail. And he's in jail when he's writing this letter to the Colossians. So he's saying, as you're praying, as you're beseeching God for all these things, I want you to pray for us, that is, for me and my associates up here. Well, what does Paul want them to pray for? Is he sick? Has he gotten some kind of a diagnosis that he wants them to pray for? No. Is he without food or water, clothing or shelter? Is that what he's wanting them to pray for? No. Is he praying for the elders in the local congregation to be better equipped? Is he praying for them to uh, know the word of God better so that they can minister to the people? Well, no. He's praying for God to open a door to declare the mystery of Christ, presumably to people who don't know it. And so we see that this apostle, this eminent figure in the early church, he's asking the Colossians to pray for him for his evangelistic activity. Now, this should encourage us because I think a lot of times we're tempted to think that there are some people that our prayers are good for, but there are other people who are kind of out of the league of our prayers. Like, oh, this person doesn't need me to pray for them. They've got all this stuff going for them. You don't usually pray for a millionaire to be able to make his mortgage payment every month. He's got what he needs, right? But Paul... Eminent apostle though he is, filled with the Spirit as he is, gifted as he is, feels the need to ask these Colossian people, just the regular congregation, people most of whose names we've forgotten, to pray for him, to ask for God to grant him this opportunity. So you as a Christian, no matter where you are, there is nobody who is too good for your prayers. Specifically, there's nobody who's too good for your prayers to preach the gospel. Your pastor needs your prayer, not only for the ministry of the word every Sunday, but for being able to share the gospel with others. Missionaries on the mission field that you know of, they need your prayers to be able to commend the word of God to other people. There's no evangelist or preacher of the word who's so great and mighty that he doesn't need prayer. Charles Spurgeon once, somebody asked him what the secret of his success was in the ministry. And he took the person to a little room where there were a bunch of people from his church praying around the clock. And he said, this is my secret. The people of God are interceding all the time for me that God would give me utterance to proclaim the word. And so Christian, don't be tempted to believe that your prayers don't matter. Jesus said, by faith we can move mountains, and that's the only way that the church has ever advanced, is through the earnest, ardent prayers of his people. So even if you yourself don't feel that you can be a professional evangelist, if the thought of going out and talking to other people about the gospel terrifies you beyond belief, if you have physical infirmities that keep you from going out and participating in the outreach of your local church, you have a magnificent ministry by praying, 
by praying for those who go out. And your prayers can be the thing that God uses to make a particular conversation a success or not, to make sure that somebody presents the gospel clearly, even to make sure that an unbeliever who's rejected the gospel for decades finally comes to faith. Never underestimate the power of your prayers. And when you come before God in prayer, you should feel the weight, the gravity, and the excitement that this makes a difference. God calls me to pray, and as I pray, God does things because he chooses to answer the prayers of his people. We want to focus a little bit particularly on what Paul is praying for. He's asking for God. He wants the people to pray that God will open a door for the word. So we're familiar with the idea of doors, right? A door is something that will either let you in to an enclosed place like a building or it will keep you out. So if you've got a locked door, then either you need a key or you need some brute force because you're not getting in. What Paul is asking is that God would open a door for the word. Now this is important because this teaches us that God has a sovereign role in our evangelism. If we want opportunities to share the gospel, if we want things to go well, if we want the ability to proclaim God's word boldly, then God needs to do something for us. He's not saying pray that I would be able to open the door, but that God would be able to open the door. God is sovereign. He's at work in millions of ways that never cross our minds, setting up scenarios, setting up people's hearts, preparing them to hear the gospel. And those aren't things we can account for. So we need to ask God to do certain things for us. That doesn't mitigate our responsibility. We need to open our mouth. Paul is actually going to say that. But we need to recognize that God has to do something. And so as we pray, not only do we beseech the Lord of the harvest to send laborers, but also to give us opportunities to help us find the wheat, as it were. So Paul wants God to open a door for the word so that he can declare the mystery of Christ on account of which I am in chains. That's an interesting term, mystery. The way we normally use the word mystery is in like mystery stories. So like Sherlock Holmes or Agatha Christie, we think of something where there's a puzzle that hasn't been solved and some detective investigates and ends up figuring it out. When the New Testament writers use the word mystery, they're talking about something a little different. Normally, they're talking about something that God has kept secret for a very, very, very long time, but now, finally, he's revealed it. He's let the cat out of the bag. And when we look in Colossians chapter 1, we see that Paul describes the good news of Jesus as the mystery of Christ, the mystery of God. In Colossians 1, verses 26 through, or actually starting in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. 
For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. So the gospel is a mystery. For a long time during the Old Testament period, God's word, his saving word, was confined to the nation of Israel. And even they didn't have everything figured out. They knew that God was a good and gracious God. They knew he was angry with sin. They knew that they sinned daily. That's why they had the sacrificial system. The sacrificial system also taught them that God was merciful and he had a way to reconcile sinful people to himself, to let them go, not give them the punishment they deserved without compromising his holiness and without compromising his justice. And bit by bit, you see pictures coming out through the Old Testament. You see this picture of the seed who's going to crush the serpent's head. You see the rock in the wilderness that breaks open and gushes out water so everyone can drink it. You see the king figure in David who rules God's people righteously. You see the figure in Isaiah 53 who's scarred beyond human recognition, yet he bears the sin of his people. But you see all this in types and shadows. Things are hidden. It's not all very clear. And then finally, when Christ comes, the cat is let out of the bag. The mystery is revealed. Jesus says, the time is fulfilled. It's here. It's not a secret anymore. The mystery has come. And then Jesus tells his disciples to go and tell them what God has done. The thing that God has hidden for so long that he's finally chosen to reveal. That salvation comes through Jesus Christ. That salvation comes through God's son becoming a man and living the perfect life that no human being has lived and taking in himself all the punishment, all the wrath that we deserve for our sins so that those who trust in him are completely forgiven, are completely right with God, are adopted into God's family. Not only that, but he rises from the dead powerfully. He comes to life again in his physical body as a foretaste of what will happen to those who trust in him. That for those who trust in Jesus, even the most bitter and widespread curse of all, the curse of death, will be undone. That Jesus says the hour is coming and now is in which all who are in their graves will hear his voice and will come out. This is the mystery. This is the thing that's hidden. And now God has given us permission to let the secret out to tell the people, to tell the world that God saves and that he saves through his son, whom he's exalted to his right hand. What Paul asks back in chapter four is he wants a door to declare this mystery. And Paul thinks this is a very important thing. This isn't just a side thing. This isn't just a, well, yeah, if you get to it, maybe we can do this, but we've got to take care of all these other things first. We've got, you know, the budget to take care of. We've got to, you know, see who's going to be teaching Sunday school. We've got to see who's going to work in the daycare next week, you know, all this stuff. This is important. This is foremost. And he doesn't, mitigate, he doesn't want to mitigate any of the other things that the church does, but this is first and foremost. In fact, this mystery of the gospel is so important that Paul just kind of slips in there. He kind of adds that it's account of, on account of this mystery that I'm in chains. When Paul's writing this, he's not writing this as a free person. It's not as though once Paul is finished writing the letter to the Colossians, he can go down the street and get a bite at his favorite tavern. He's got actual physical metal chains on his wrists. He's attached to a Roman guard, and he's not allowed to leave. Why? Well, if you're reading the book of Acts, chapters 21 through 28, you see this story about how when Paul was traveling to Jerusalem, when he went to the temple, the Jewish leaders 
who did not believe in Jesus and who hated Paul for preaching Jesus and thought that he was destroying their way of life, they grabbed a hold of him and they were going to kill him. But the Roman government swooped in and took him in custody. They took him and said, hey, this guy needs to be given a fair trial. We're not going to let you murder him. And so Paul, in order to escape the constant plots of the Jewish leaders trying to kill him, appeals to Caesar. He says, if I've done something wrong, I don't object to being put to death, but I want to stand before the emperor and plead my case. And so they take him on a ship all the way from Israel to Italy, to Rome, to the heart of the Roman Empire. And it's there that Paul starts his ministry in Rome of proclaiming the gospel from the very heart of the empire itself. As he proclaims the word of Christ here, it can go out into all corners of the empire to places that Paul will never reach in his lifetime. And Paul doesn't see this as a waste. He always says, you can see, just hear the joyful tone where he says, I am Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, a bondservant of Christ Jesus. He counts his life as nothing for himself. He only wants to use it to spread the gospel, to tell others of the Jesus who saved him, to tell others of the Jesus who loved him and gave himself for him. This is the thing that controls Paul and that drives him. And when I hear that, I feel convicted. I feel that I don't always take the ministry of the gospel as importantly as I should. Now, I'm not an apostle, and none of us are apostles. Our daily vocations, the way you earn your living, may not be sharing the gospel with others. But it should still be important. It should still be something that we're willing to suffer for, that we're willing to be put in prison for. The day may come in our country, we've enjoyed lots of freedoms, but the day may come in our country when sharing the gospel faithfully will land you in jail. And not just because you're sharing the gospel, but because you're proclaiming the lordship of Jesus in a ways that offend our culture. And so as we think about the good news of Christ and what he's done and the great treasure that he's given us, we have to think, does this mean enough to me that I could say it's because of the gospel that I'm in prison and that's okay? But we're getting a little aside. Paul is praying for the opportunity to declare this mystery, and he specifies in verse 4, that I may make it clear, which is how I ought to speak. Evangelism in its most basic sense is taking the good news of Christ, the mystery of Christ, and making it clear to somebody who doesn't know it. Just think about it. If the good news of Christ is a mystery that's been hidden from the foundation of the world and has only been revealed in the last 2,000 years, there's still a lot of people who don't know it. There are lots of people in Hayden, Idaho, who do not know that Christ has died for sinners and that he was buried and raised from the dead and that forgiveness of sins can be found just by trusting in him, just by turning from sin and trusting in him. There are lots of people in this very town who don't know that. And so Paul is praying and he asked the Colossians to pray for him that he would be able to make it clear because that's how he ought to speak. When we're talking about the gospel, it should be understandable. It should be something that we can present even to a child and they get it. While the gospel is deep, while we can understand it in a very deep way, we can and should communicate it in very simple terms, in terms that people can understand. You are a sinner. You know that you do bad things. Your conscience convicts you of doing bad things and God's word convicts you of doing bad things. You know that there is a God, when you look at creation, you can't help but see his handiwork. 
and yet you suppress it. Instead of trying to live for God, you try to live your own way. But the good news is that God offers to forgive you and reconcile you to himself through his son. Will you trust in Jesus? Will you turn from sin and believe the gospel? Not all of us may be able to preach a sermon on Sunday morning. Not all of us may be able to do a lot of things, but all of us can tell the good news of what God has done. If, the God, if God has saved us through his good news, if that good news of what Jesus has done has made a difference in our hearts, then we can tell it to others. And we can tell it in the hope that God will do great things through it. And so we have this first thing in the Christian life. All Christians can participate in the work of evangelism through prayer. All that stuff we've just been talking about, all that stuff about Paul making the gospel known in the heart of the Roman Empire is fueled by a bunch of Christians, most of whom don't know how to read, in this town, miles and miles away, praying for him. So as Paul's getting ready to stand before the emperor, as he's getting ready to make his case, all these Christians are praying, God, let Paul make the word of Christ known. Let him make it known clearly. So who do you know that's in Rome right now? Who do you know that's in a difficult place where the gospel needs to be made known? Who do you know who would benefit from the strength and grace that will be given to them as you pray for them? Make a list of these people and make it your mission to pray continually that they would make the mystery of Christ known as they ought to speak. And as you do that, you will be anything but a spectator in the work of evangelism. You will be on the front lines sharing the good news. But there's something even more direct that Paul does. Not only should we be praying, we should also be taking care for the way we live our everyday life. In verse 5, he begins his second instruction to the Colossians. Walk in wisdom toward outsiders, making the best use of the time. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So the first instruction is about praying. This instruction is about walking. Now when Paul uses the word walk here, he's not saying walk in wisdom so that you don't stub your toe and fall or something. It's not literal walking. When Paul talks about the way that Christians are supposed to walk, he's talking about the way you should live your life. The way that you live should be characterized by something. What is it that it should be characterized by? It should be characterized by wisdom. Now, what is wisdom? Wisdom is one of those kind of abstract words. We aren't always good at attaching a specific meaning to it, but if we had to define wisdom a good way to do it would be to say that it's good judgment in the face of Christian demands or human demands. In other words, when life gives you a crossroads, when it gives you a series of choices, you know how to make the best and most God-glorifying choice. If you don't have specific instructions, you have these basic things. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You know God well enough. You know his word well enough to know that this is a good choice. This is the way I'm supposed to live. According to Paul, he says that our lives should be characterized by wisdom, specifically in the direction of outsiders. So it's not just that your life should be lived in a wise way. Generally, you know, make sure you don't uh, spend all your money and go into debt. Make sure that you raise your kids right. Make sure that you're doing all these things. Specifically, he says your life needs to be lived 
wisely in the direction of unbelievers. That's what he means by outsiders. When he's talking about outsiders, he's talking about people who are outside the church, outside of the community of Christ, outside of a saving relationship with Christ. So first of all, he assumes that Christians are among such people. It's very normal and very good for Christians to live, work, and interact around people who are not Christians. So if you find yourself in a workplace where there's a lot of non-Christians and you feel discouraged, don't. You're in a long, healthy tradition of Christian people who have worked and labored alongside unbelievers. Don't be upset if you find yourself in a neighborhood or in a park or in some kind of a gathering where there's lots of unbelievers present. God wants you to be there. He wants you to be there. And if we believe the book of Colossians that Christ is sufficient, then we should believe that God has equipped us to live the right way in these environments. And so Paul's instruction is, be careful how you live around the unbelievers. And specifically, the way we're supposed to be careful is by making the best use of our time. In other translations, you might read, it says, redeeming the time, buying back the time. This idea comes from the fact that we as Christians know that there is a big, big event on the calendar of history. It's the second coming of Christ. We know that one day, history as we know it is going to end. Jesus is going to come back to the world. He's going to reign. He's going to get rid of all sin, all disease, all suffering, all evil, and he's going to remake the world new. But he's also going to bring judgment on the unbelieving world. Everybody will receive what is due for what they have done. And Paul says, the time is very short before that happens. Every day is a day when we get closer to the day when Christ comes back, and he hasn't told us a specific day. We just know that it's impending, it's near, it's coming, and every day we live is one less day before that happens. Paul says, you need to remember that. You need to remember that when you're interacting with your unbelieving co-workers, with your unbelieving family members. There is not much time left. And so if we need motivation or encouragement or something to make the difference, to tip the scale in whether or not we're going to make that comment or whether we're going to bring up that awkward conversation, even if something bad happens, this should be it. That we need to make the best use of the time, that every day is a day we'll never get back. And that one day is going to be the last day when we're plunged into eternity. And for Christians, we don't need to be afraid of that for ourselves. We know that Christ has made us secure in him. We have an anchor in the Holy of Holies and that whatever happens, that Jesus will keep us safe. He'll cleanse us. He'll make it so that we can stand before God without blemish, even though it may be scary because of how great and holy he is. We can still come to the throne of grace with confidence. We shouldn't be scared for ourselves. We should be concerned about those who have to face God without a mediator. And every day is a day closer to their court date. Christian, if you, one day all of eternity will be fixed. The believers will be in a new paradise where there's no more sickness or suffering and we glorify God forever and the unbelievers go to the lake of fire, the place of outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. If we are to make a difference, if we're to bring people out of one category into another, it must be now or never. 
If people are to go from being among the goats to being among the sheep, it must be now while there's still time. And it's not your responsibility to make someone a Christian. You can't. Only God can. But it is your responsibility to tell them the good news. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. So if we want someone to be saved, if we want them to be able to see Jesus and hear the words, well done, good and faithful servant, we must tell them. And I feel the fear to share the gospel just as much as anybody. I've botched it enough times on my own. But let's not let that discourage us from pressing forward. Yesterday is past. Today is a new day. Let's press on while there's still time and God will do the rest. And as we're living wisely among our unbelieving neighbors, friends, and family members, Paul notes a specific area that we need to be on guard with. And that is this. Our mouth, our words, our tongue. One of the most important things that you must keep a watch on and one of the most important things you must discipline as you're relating to unbelievers is the way you speak. Isn't that interesting? We often say that our actions speak louder than our words. There's a sense in which that's true, but here Paul says you really need to focus on the word part. He says, let your speech always, not just sometimes, not just when it's convenient even, not just when you've had your coffee in the morning. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. So first of all, our speech should be gracious, characterized by grace. Now, what does he mean by gracious? Well, in the New Testament, we see that grace is God's unmerited favor towards sinners. It's the blessings that he gives to people who don't deserve it. But that might not be the focus here. Gracious can also mean something that's endowed with favor. And so it's pleasant when you talk about somebody who walks gracefully. That means when they walk, they don't look like, you know, they just stumbled out of bed in the morning and they didn't get much sleep the night before. There's some elegance. There's some poise. There's some skill. There's something attractive about the way that they walk. And Paul says that attractive quality needs to be something that's a part of the way you speak as a Christian. The way you speak shouldn't sound like rusty metal gears clanking against each other. It should sound like a symphony, like a violin, something that's gracious, something that's pleasant. That doesn't mean you never say hard things. But I think especially those of us who've lived with family members long enough, we know that there's a way you can say something that makes somebody more inclined to do something. And there's a way you can say something that will totally shut someone off from doing that. There's a difference between saying, honey, can you please turn down your music? It's rather late. And saying, turn the radio off. What do you think this is, a concert hall? That kind of thing, you know? And that's a rather extreme example, but we can tell the difference, right? There's a difference between gracious words and grating words. And so Paul says, let your speech always be gracious. This is important when you're around unbelievers. Because for an unbeliever, their very first exposure to Christianity, authentic Christianity, genuine Christianity, a lot of times is going to be you. It's going to be you. And as an ambassador for Christ, you don't want to misrepresent him. Now we have to own our sin. We know that none of us are perfect and we should own it when we do something wrong. 
but that's a part of the gracious way that we speak. It's speaking in accordance with truth, speaking things that are good and right and true and lovely with the people we live our lives around. Specifically, he says that they're supposed to be seasoned with salt. Now, we know this salt metaphor occurs in the Gospels, right? Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt has lost its saltiness, what can it be seasoned with? It's good for nothing to be cast out and to be trodden under feet by men. You are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill can't be hidden. And people don't take a lamp and hide it under a basket, but they put it on a candlestick. And it gives light to everyone who's in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men so that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Without meaning to be arrogant, and while remembering our own sin, we as Christians are the best people on the planet, in the sense that we're the only ones who know our sin rightly, who've received forgiveness of sins, and who are being cleansed by the Holy Spirit to live in a right way. The way we speak should be different, and the way we speak should make unbelievers say, I'm not sure about all the things that they say about Jesus, but something about that is good. Something about that is better than what I've been exposed to. And whether you're talking to somebody who's come from just in a, you know, a completely pagan background or somebody who's been trapped in a very polite, very cold Mormonism or legalism, a fresh, good Christian speech can do wonders in wooing somebody to the gospel. He says, let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. Final thought. It's really important to speak graciously because the way you speak graciously has apologetic value. Now, for those of you who don't know the word apologetics, it's a fancy term that's used for defending the Christian faith for answering objections to Christianity, for interacting with unbelievers. According to Paul, if you endeavor to speak in such a way that your words are gracious, that they're characterized with the good salt of the kingdom, he says, if you do that, you will know how to answer other people. So if you interact with other people, if you interact with unbelievers about the gospel and they're all invested in the conversation, they're going to come back at you with objections. There are going to be things about Christianity that they don't like, that they don't understand. And for some of us, it comes easier to others to think through difficult topics, to come back with answers to specific objections about the Bible. Maybe for some of us, that's a little harder. But for all of us, if we know the right way to speak, we'll know the right way we should respond to these objections. That is, we don't respond arrogantly, and we don't respond in a harsh way, but we respond in a gracious way. You can say, gee, I don't know the answer to that question. I want to look into that because I care about the truth, too. I want to believe the truth. But let me tell you as well about what Christ has done for me and what he can do for you. And whatever you say, I'm still going to treat you graciously. According to Paul, if you know the right way to respond, if you know how to speak graciously, you don't have to fumble for answers in a conversation. You can always speak in the right way, even if you don't know what to say specifically. So as we close, 
we see that Paul has given two big instructions on how every Christian can advance the work of the gospel, namely by praying for Christians they know to be in difficult contexts, pray that God would open doors for them and let them speak the gospel clearly, and by just living their life, but living the Christian life in a wise way, leveraging opportunities with unbelievers, looking at specific times and saying, okay, God, I know the time is short. This looks like an opportunity where I can make a mention about Jesus, where I can take a stand for Jesus. By your grace, I'm going to take it. I'm going to step out of the boat. I'm going to do what needs to be done. And all the while, speaking graciously. And as we do that, God will bless our efforts because God's given us all we need in Christ. He's not a stingy father. He's a loving father. And as we walk in obedience, he will richly supply what we need and he will do wonders. When we opened with the illustrations about the parade, the play, the sporting event, and how there's spectators and there's people who actually participate, we understand that that's not the way the church works, that everybody participates. But we should also know that the end result, the end goal is more glorious than any of those. At the end of a parade, you just have a messy street to clean up. At the end of a play, you have a round of applause and then an empty room. At a sporting event, you have a shiny trophy that tarnishes after a few years. You know what the end result of sharing the gospel is, of proclaiming the Great Commission? Trophies that are made out of redeemed human souls. People, according to whom Paul in Ephesians says that God sets forward so that he might make known the riches of his grace on people throughout all eternity. We have living trophies. We have better trophies. If you're a Christian, you are a trophy of God's grace that somebody else preached the gospel to and who believed. We have the opportunity to go for trophies that are greater and brighter and that will never fade away. And so as we press on in the work of evangelism, are you ready to engage in a work that is greater and higher than anything else we can do? and a work that won't fade away, that will last forever. As we're around the throne saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is now full of his glory. Will you pray with me?